Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And we've got seven verses this morning, and the, the temptation is to think that they're not so important, because it's just seven verses. That uh, it's got less direction for us in life, because it's just seven verses. Uh, but what I hope we get at this morning is that these seven verses have big consequences to how we live uh, our lives as Christians this morning. So let's read it. Exodus 17, verses uh, 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people called with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Where the people thirsted then for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to storm me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the man, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Phelan, and you shall strike the rock, and the waters shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Before we start this morning, the, the real question that we're, we're faced with is, is the question of are we quick to test God or quick to trust Him? And that's what I hope we take away from this morning. Are we quick to trust or quick to test God? And I think the importance is, just like we've done the past weeks, we need to really fully picture just what this scene really is. Well, again, we'll look at these seven verses and go, it wasn't that amazing. He just hit a rock. But actually, this scene is really amazing. We've been reminded that there's 2.5 million people here. Do you get that? That when, when people are complaining, there's 2.5 million people complaining. When people are thirsty, there's 2.5 million people absolutely thirsty. There are 2.5 million people testing the Lord here and not trusting in the Lord. That's a lot of people for Moses to deal with. That's a lot of people for God to have to change their hearts. And if it was today, then it's 2.5 million people. That's a big congregation you wouldn't be allowed to meet. <laughs> but as we think about the mentality, it's one almost of a death mentality. If you were dying, if you were struggling, if you were suffering, what's your go-to mode? Is it one of trusting or, or one of mourning complaining? Because actually silence sometimes speaks the most about our trust in God. How often we see someone struggling and we say, I can't believe they just carry on with life. I can't believe that they're not complaining. They don't ever mourn. You see, silence shows our trust in these times greater than words do. And the mentality of the Israelites is, is one of, I'm going to mourn about this. They say, I'm not going to be silent and wait on God to provide or do something. I'm going to complain. In fact, I'll go to man and see if man has a solution. I'll go to Moses. This is 2.5 million people thirsting, wanting to stone 
Moses. Do you get the stress of Moses? If 10 people were coming to storm me, I'd run. When 2.5 million people are stood in front of you, you're not getting out of it. That's why you cry to the Lord and say, what do I do with these people? They're going to storm me. And there's no way out. And the, the rock, how often it comes to the rock, and we talk about what's the strength in the rock, and we almost picture in our minds, don't we, just a little puddle, sort of coming forth, a little drip out of the rock, one at a time, you know, everyone queue up, take it, and turn and spill up your cup. But we're not going to understand that this event is just as monumental as the Red Sea being parted. For them to see the Red Sea parted was awesome. For them to see water come from the rock was just as awesome. So we need to understand just, just how amazing this act was of God. In Psalm uh, 105, <coughs> at verse 41, it says, He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. See, water, water gushed out. It's not, that's not a dribble. And if we look as well at Psalm 78, uh, verse uh, 15 and 16, it says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like a river. You see, that's why these seven verses are something amazing. Be uh, something on the scale of the Red Sea being parted. He takes a desert and he doesn't get a drip from a rock. He puts a stream in the desert, a river in the desert. So if you're picturing Moses stood in front of the rock and sort of walking up to it, hitting it, and water coming out, I don't even think Moses could have stood in front of the rock. This is colossal force out of the rock. He's going to have to stand above it all to the side of it because God, when he moves, God moves in power. And it comes as a force. That's exactly why these verses are built up throughout the rest of the Bible as so we're going to look at this morning. They're not seven verses that are glossed over by the rest of the Bible. So, so where is their trust? The Israelites' trust. Those who God has brought them out of Egypt, where's their trust? And this morning, where's our, where's our faith? Because you know, this, this event becomes a simple reminder of God's amazing power and what He can do. But the event also this morning, it becomes an amazing reminder of spiritual testing. And so often when it comes to spiritual testing, we don't like it. Let's be fair. No one likes being tested spiritually. We despise it almost. In fact, I remember when I was very young, one of the first trials you come up against is when you're learning to ride the bike. And you think you've got it, and then dad takes off the stabilizers of the bike. That guy's evil. <laughs> Because honestly, he knows you're going to fall, you know? Anyone who takes stabilizers off the back for the kid is it's just pure evil. They're just watching for disaster to strike. And I remember, I remember this, and, and it, was, uh, so, uh, so it was me and Dad, uh, and Mum came out as well to watch. She obviously came out thinking it was going to be a bad moment how wrong she was. But Dad says, get on the bike. Well, that's like asking a kid to get on a horse, you know? It's, it's not even standing up straight anymore. So dad has to hold the bike. And I, and I get, on the, get on the bike. And he says, he says, have a go, have a go. Well, as I said, he's pure evil. I fell off the bike in about three seconds. And I, my reaction, 
It's not one of, let's try that again. My reaction is, let me storm off into the house. So mum intercedes, she comes into the picture now, and, and it's the most irritating phrase, isn't it? When you fall off the horse, you've got to get back on again as soon as possible, or however big horse, mum says all the time. She, she, she knows. But you don't care, you know? It's not a horse, it's a bike. I don't want to get back on that bike, you know? So then mum has to talk to dad, you know, Stephen, hold the bike. So dad holds the bike, I get back on the bike, going up the street, we have one time up the street, back down the street. Oh, you know what, I've got this sorted. So then dad goes, right, let's try faster. And I fall off this time because we tried going faster. And instead of blaming myself, I blamed dad. In fact, I shouted at mum, dad remembers this. I turned to mum and I said, he pushed me off the bike. He was holding onto it and he purposely pushed it over. And you see, when we come to spiritual testing, it's really no different. We think we've got it all sorted, and that's our biggest issue. Is we think we've got it sorted. We know how to ride the spiritual bike. And then God takes his hand off for just a moment. It's not for God to see what you're going to do. Because God knows what you're going to do in the morning. But God needs you to see exactly what you're going to do in the morning. You see, the spiritual testing is one of faith. And it's one where we need to learn that so often in our spiritual times of testing, we fail. And we give up. And we walk off into the house. God says, just wait. Learn, learn from this. You see, these are God's people coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. But God's got a plan in mind to take them into the promised land. But the people need to be right in order to enter. So God tests them to point out where they need to work on, where they need to put more trust into God himself in order for them to be spiritually right for them to enter the promised land. And you know, God knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, verse, verse 1 of Exodus 17 is, is where we see that. Um, it says, And all, all of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. Now whether this is God speaking to Moses, or if you remember from a few weeks ago, you would have looked at God led them out in a pillar of cloud, by night fire. And you see, God has led them here to the Mount of the Red. And if you don't believe this morning that God's all knowing, then just know that the word for red means desert. So you don't need to be God to know there's not going to be any water there. So God has purposely taken them to a place of no water in order to spiritually test them. He knows what he's doing. It's the people who think he doesn't. Why have you brought us here? To thirst and to die? Well, no, that's not God's plan for them. And you see, in, in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 16, it makes it clear that this test is for the people. It's not for God. It says, who, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water? Who brought you water out of the plenty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end, 
You see, our spiritual testing, we have a, a chance, an opportunity to witness God in his provided hand, to glorify God. But it has got benefits for us. It says right there, doesn't it? To test you, to do you good in the end. It's for your own good that you need to learn to trust in God. Because the world's broken. The quicker you learn you need to trust in God, the easier life will get. Doesn't mean life will sort itself out. But life will get easier when you trust in God. And you see, they, they fail the test, don't they? Moses says that in Exodus 17, verse 2. Why do you test the Lord? They take God's test with them, they spin it round and they slap it back in God's face. You know, the Israelites, they, as I said before, they, they go to the man, they go to Moses. They call to him, they complain to him. What are you going to do for us? The real question is, what is God going to do for us? And you know, that's why Moses passes the test. Because Moses, as the leader, he didn't have some special water bottle with him. He didn't have his own supply of water that he had in secret. When 2.5 million people thirsted, Moses was thirsting with them. He was in the same situation. In fact, he was in the worst situation. Because these 2.5 million thirsty people wanted to kill him. Now he doesn't go to his best friend and talk to him. He doesn't go to any of the men. He really with, with the people. In fact, when he argues with the people, he points them straight to God. Why are you testing God? Don't look at me. But, but Moses passes the test. He goes straight to God. What am I going to do with these people? And God steps in the picture. God gives an answer. You see, when we're tested on our faithfulness to God, so often we take the test, we spin it round, and we say to God, let me now test your faithfulness to me. And the question is, how long are we going to test God, his mercy and his patience with us? We need to learn fast that God is faithful to us. It's us who isn't. Because we sought in that faith. And that's the truth. And we cannot test God. If you want the teaching of Jesus, you go to Matthew 4. It's the temptation. You might know it well, you might not. Matthew 4 has the temptation in the wilderness. And when Satan tests Jesus, Jesus' reply is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he's quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Deuteronomy, if you were to turn to it, it ends... Ends by, by saying a, a merry ball, which we get in verse 7 in Exodus 17. It's talking about this place. You see, these seven verses aren't irrelevant. These seven verses build a whole principle that even Jesus himself lives by don't <coughs> test God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Paul then writes, Don't test Christ. Why not? Because Christ is God himself. If you're not going to test God, and if God himself is going to live by his own standard, I'm not going to test myself. That's what Jesus basically said. Don't test God. I'm not going to do it. Don't you do it. Because you're followers of me. You see, don't test Christ who is God. And so often we, we test God, and the reason is because we have a heart of stone. That's really what we, that's our issue. When it comes to this situation, where they are turning and quarreling and testing God. Psalm 78, 
tells us this. It's, it's where God is really just almost grieved by it. Because Psalm 78 verse 41 says, They tested God again and again. And for both the Holy One of Israel, they're practically plotting God with a stick. And they're doing it over and over again, and they're not learning the lesson. And in verse 42, we get the understanding of, why do we do this? Why don't we just learn? And verse 42 says, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the fall. You see, they've gone through the plagues. <laughs> You'd think that's enough to see God be able to do miraculous plagues on the Egyptians. They've gone through the Passover. They've seen the firstborns killed. Not only that, they've seen the mercy and love of God that the angel of the Lord would go past them and spare them. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. Stuart reminded us that when you see a pillar of fire, it's not normal, no matter at what stage in time. They've seen the Red Sea parted, they've walked through the Red Sea, they've came out the other side. They've seen manna given from heaven. In fact, this isn't the first time that they're thirsty. Chapter 15 ends with them being thirsty. And they, God provided them. Moses chuck a log into that. That bit of water that you can't drink will become sweet. God stepped in then. Will it not just learn? You see, so often we're so blind to God's power. We've seen Him do things and we forget it. Again, we get a similar incident in Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament. And Jesus, He feeds the 4,000 with seven loaves of bread. His disciples would hop into a boat, they go across to the other side, they chat to some Pharisees, they hop back in the boat, and while they're on the boat, the disciples just start to wonder. Man, you've only got one loaf of bread here. I don't even to stop. And Jesus is like, come on, do you not get it yet? Do you not understand? Jesus himself says to his disciples, did you not see? that I fed 5,000, and he says to them, how many loaves did, did that take? And they're like, five. Oh, and, and did you see me feed the 4,000? How many did that take? They said, oh, it's seven. And it's almost like Jesus is looking at them in the board and like, you know, count yourselves here. There's 13 of us. We've got one loaf of bread. I think we can do something with that when God is in the picture. You see, but so often what we do is we see God step in the picture. We're thankful in the moment. That's chapter 15. They're praising God. They're singing a song. And a few hours later, God, where the heck are you? They're not happy. And they just cannot see God stepping in the picture and providing. Why? Because we're so blind to God's power half the time. We need to remember it. You see, Psalm uh, 95, uh, verses 8 to 9, it really gets to this. It says, though they had seen my work, though they had seen my work, they, they kept on testing me, though they had seen my work. And the writer in uh, Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews chapter 3, he would say, he would quote from this psalm and say, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and so my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said they always go astray in their hearts. 40 years in the wilderness and God kept providing. God kept showing his power. 
And they just kept going astray in their own hearts. Forgetting him. Not trusting in him. And the writer of Hebrews, he really goes on to talk about where that confidence you had on day one. When God came to you and you trusted in God, that confidence you had on day one, you need to keep that confidence all the way through. And so often we go on spiritual highs, don't we? I, I go to Yorkshire Christian camp every year. So often, or Keswick Convention, that's another great one. And you come back on a spiritual high, and you're like, we're going to transform Britain. And within a week, you're spiritually dead. And this is what it's getting at, the writer of Hebrews. Just like them in the wilderness, you need to hold on to that same confidence that you once had. You need to keep your trust in God. You see, we might waver. And circumstances might change and get harder. But as long as you know that the God has acted before, and you know that that same God will act again. It's about being able to see God work before God works. That's what we want. Our hearts, our minds, our eyes fully open to God. And when we're in the circumstance, we can see what God's going to do before he does it. When you're thirsty, you can see God's going to provide water before he does it. When you're hungry, you know God's going to provide food before he does it. We want to be so in tune with God and so in a place of trust with God that he will come. He will be our saviour in all circumstances. We are so blind, but we need to just hold fast. We want to be people like in chapter 15, where we're singing the praises of God. And not people like in these seven verses, who are going to man for answers, and quarreling, and complaining, and wondering, where is God? Is he amongst us? Who knows? No, we want to be those who are singing and saying, God's doing amazing things for us. God's going to keep doing amazing things for us. Because God's presence is always with us. That's what we want to be doing. And you know, we have it. We talk about it. The word is a lamp unto our feet. And the word is, is pure gold. And for us, it really is today. Because this, to the Jews, is just a historical event. Now, one that is monumental, absolutely amazing, don't overlook it. But to us today, it has such a, a deeper meaning, too. You see, we've read from these verses in the past. Well, I've been here two weeks. We've read from them the past two weeks. You've maybe kept reading from the movement earlier. But in 1 Corinthians 10, let me just repeat these, refresh our minds. 1 Corinthians 10 says, in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All walked through the Red Sea. That's basically what's here. And all ate the same spiritual food. Well, that's Stuart's sermon. Now on to Andy's sermon. The man is coming down. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That's where we're at today. But they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see, God's word is gold. Especially for us today. Because God's word is like hidden treasures. And it has a hidden meaning that reveals itself years later. And this is what Paul comes to. The spiritual rock is Christ. Now by that, let's make sure we don't get confused. 
He specified spiritual rock for a reason. Because Jesus was not the physical rock in that desert. When, when Moses hit the rock, he didn't hit the forehead of Jesus, okay? Let's make sure we're clear on that, because some people do get a misunderstanding. this. But, you see that, don't you? That this spiritual rock followed them. See, that's what we were talking about earlier. The cloud that was leading them. That was the second person of the Trinity. That, that was Jesus, pre-incarnation of Jesus, in the cloud, leading them through the wilderness. And in Exodus 17, he says, go to the Mount Hobbit, and I'll be standing there. You see, the presence of God has to stand where there's going to be miracles done. Because it's God who works miracles, not man. You see, Christ was the spiritual rock. Not a material rock, a spiritual rock. But he was there. When, when water burst forth, he was there. It was by his hand, his power that it was done. And you see, the physical rock can provide people physical needs. The physical rock brought forth. Physical water. And the physical water, well, that sustains your physical needs at first. But we need a spiritual rock in order to sustain us spiritually. We need a spiritual rock that can bring forth spiritual water that can fulfill us in our spiritual thirst. You know, Andrew was saying last week, wasn't he, about the spiritual thirst, the spiritual hunger. We try and fill it in so many ways. With sex, with money, with popularity, with, with power. Maybe even with work. That's one that goes unnoticed half the time. But how many times we meet workaholics and we praise them because they're working a lot. But the truth is, they're just trying to fill that same spiritual thirst. I you see the spiritual thirst goes even further. Ecclesiastes would tell us that eternity is in everyone's heart. And at a time like now, with the coronavirus, where people are worrying about the elderly folks and those with pre-existing conditions, you see, death enters the picture. And there is a deeper worry than just people are going to get ill and people are going to cease. You see, that's the real worry. Is we all have eternity in our hearts. And we all deep down really believe that when we die, life does not cease. And that leads to a massive spiritual thirst. We need something to fill it. So we try and kid ourselves that this life is the only life we've got. This life will come to an end. Therefore, do everything you can in this life. But the spiritual thirst is one that is pointing you to there is life after this life. You need to do something now in order to be spiritually filled in the next life. You see, this physical rock provides physical needs, but the spiritual rock does so much more. And that's why God's word is called to us, because we read it and we understand it. And in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 5, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. 
Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, Christ is our spiritual rock, and Christ is also our stricken rock. He's the one beaten, he's the one killed for us. He did that so that he might take away our sins, all the things we've done wrong. He did that so he might please the Father, the wrath, the anger against all evil in this world. He was struck so that something new could come forth. You see, and that's what, um, that's what Isaiah 50, 55 verse 1 is getting at. You see, come on with thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There's no cost to the spiritual water. Because Christ was stricken. He paid the price. He did everything required for the water. So that you might have the water with no cost. You see, in John chapter 4, this is what Christ is talking about. To the woman at the well, when he says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you a drink more. In a few verses on, he says, Jesus said to him, Everyone who drinks of this water, the physical water, no different from that physical water in Exodus 17. So anyone who drinks of this will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water well enough, well enough to eternal life. See, followed th through the desert, Jesus was there every step of the way, provided for their physical needs. But we need to come this morning and recognize that there's more than a physical need that we need to be sustained and filled. It's the spiritual one. And we need to recognize that Christ can do that. Because Christ took all of the suffering. When Moses struck that rock, it, was, it, it did happen. It was a historical event. But pointing forward to an even greater historical event. Christ, our stricken rock, who was beaten and killed for us. The manna was a sign and an imagery of Christ coming down from heaven. That's what the manna did. God's provision from heaven. And then the water and the rock. That's the imagery of Christ when he's on this earth and what he did for us. And you know, there is a new thing springing forth. And it's one of eternal life. And he says, come all you who are thirsty, come and drink. And find how sweet it is, how fulfilling it really is, that this, this living water would be an unfailing flow that just keeps on going. Through every circumstance, it just keeps on going, keeps you sustained. This living water that makes you alive with joy and happiness and also hope for the future, that no matter what happens, there's a future. 
eternity in our hearts. We know there's a future. The living water allows us to have hope in that future. And living water that sustains us from thirst, of a spiritual thirst that would lead to a spiritual death. But drink of this sweet water that provides and fulfills that spiritual thirst, that gives spiritual life to you. That's what's promised to you. Revelation 21 verse 6 says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. There's no cost involved. But really our question this morning is almost that other saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And this morning, where are you? Because often we all know this. We've heard it before, but we're not drinking of that water. Or often we maybe maybe we're saved. Maybe we've tasted the water. We know how sweet it is, but we've forgotten that sweet taste. Two things often happen. One, we just, well, it's always there for water. I'm going to help myself whenever I want it. And you get used to that sweet taste, don't you? Stop seeing just how amazing it is. You go back to the picture of Moses striking the rock and a dribble coming out instead of seeing Moses striking the rock and water gushing forwards. And so often when we come in our spiritual lives, the truth is that we've forgotten the monumental force that God works in our lives with, the power, the miracles he does in our lives, and we've just made it normal. And we just think it's a dribble and a puddle. So this morning we need to remind ourselves God works in amazingness. He works with monumental force. That's why you can walk through life. Through the darkest times. And still walk in joy and happiness. And hope. Because God is monumental force. keeps pushing you forward. That's a sweet God. That's a loving God. And did you see... In Exodus 17, verse 3. In Exodus 17, verse 3. This, but the people thirsted their water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You see, God provided while the people were mourning. That's the grace of God. That's what Indy read this morning. While we were still in our transgressions, when we were still doing wrong, when we were at our worst, God steps in the picture. God doesn't say to Moses, make the 2.5 million people stop complaining and mourning, and then I'll do something for them. Because the grace of God acts. The love of God works in all situations. Because God's working is not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon God. And God's a God who works. And that's why we trust in Him. We don't test Him. God is always working. We just might not see Him. God is always there. He's not a pillar of cloud or fire today, so He's maybe harder to see. But He's always there. And He's, he's always working. 
The grace of God steps in the picture when you're at your worst, not when you're at your best. He steps in at your worst, and he's there the whole journey, until the best, until you enter the promised land. We have to be disciplined, we have to go through times of spiritual tests, and then it's not easy. But it's made so much more easier when we understand God's with us every step of the way. Walking with us. He stood on the rock, ready to pour forth water into our life. He's there to fulfill our spiritual needs and desires. He's there that we might have hope in eternity. See, the question is, will you, will you trust the spiritual rock? Or will you go on through life testing it? And they tested the Lord and said, Is the Lord of moments or not? That's verse 7. But this morning we have comfort in the Lord is with us. It says that in the very last verse, Matthew 28, says to his disciples, I will be with you always, till the end. He's with us this morning. That's why we can worship and praise in such an amazing way. He's with us every step of the way. We don't need to test God and ask him, where are you in the situations? He's there already with us. And he's so so might our prayer this morning just be, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Might we never forget your power and glory. Amen.